Well, when I found out I was preaching on this passage, I was assigned this. This is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. I didn't make that up. Commentators even say that. So. And it reminded me of an anecdote um, from my preaching class in seminary. The story of a seminary student who was very nervous, and he had to get up and do his practice sermon, and he said to his fellow students, do you know what I'm going to say to you today? And if you, if you know what I'm going to say to you today, then um, raise your hand, and nobody raised their hand. And so he said, well, neither do I, and he sat down. <laughs> then the professor said, you, you must give a practice sermon. So the next class period, he got up and he said, well, do any of you know what I'm going to say to you today? And of course, now they knew, and they all raised their hand. And he said, well, then I don't need to tell you, and he sat down. <laughs> the professor was persistent, and so one more time. And the fellow got up again, and he said, uh, those of you who know what I'm going to say to you today, raise your hand, and half the people did. And, and then he said, those of you who don't know what I'm going to say to you today, raise your hand, and the other half did. And he said, well, then those of you who do, tell those of you who don't. And he sat down. All right, so I feel like that um, this morning. So um, let alone the fact that as I was working through this passage all week long, the 1971 song Signs by the Five Man Electrical Band kept going through my head. So if you're from my era, I'm sorry about that. It's going to go through your head the rest of the day. This is a difficult passage. It's difficult in part because it's the longest block of teaching in Mark's gospel. And it's actually not uh, one uh, teaching that Jesus gave. It's a collection of different sayings that Jesus gave that Mark brings together at this point in his gospel. We know that it's a collection because in Matthew's and Luke's gospels, um, these sayings are put in different contexts. Um, so the fact that these sayings are not in their original context makes Jesus' words actually somewhat difficult to understand. Now, when you, when you read these verses, you may be thinking that Jesus is predicting the end times. But actually, he's not in this passage. He's speaking to his disciples about their present situation uh, that they find themselves in and, and how what is coming in their immediate future is like that which is going to come when the judgment comes and, um, and the day of the Lord comes. And that's why you find uh, the word uh, these in this passage. Tell us when these things are going to happen. Look at these great buildings. Um, and in the Greek text, not in our English translation, what about these birth pangs? Uh, he will speak of those days that are to come in a later part of this chapter. But our text this morning is focusing on what is happening now in these disciples' lives and what is happening in these days. Now, that, that doesn't mean that um, what we call eschatology, and that's a, a good theological word that talks about the, that means the teaching about end times. That doesn't mean that eschatology isn't important in our Christian lives, so don't get me wrong. Um, there are those that say that it really doesn't matter what you think about uh, the, end, uh, the end times. And if you hear somebody say that, uh, well, they're just wrong. Um, what you believe about the end times makes a huge difference about the way you live your life now. I mean, those who teach that believers will be raptured at the second coming are not usually concerned with issues like climate change and social injustices, believing that dealing with those issues is like rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic, a phrase that I actually heard from my pastor when I was growing up. 
But those who think the Bible does not teach that believers will be raptured out of this world, that believers will be sticking around in a redeemed and renewed earth, uh, tend to be very active in issues like climate change and social injustice. So what we think about what's coming in the end has a lot to do with how we comport our lives now. It's an important issue. Either way, we as Christians live our lives, though, on the basis not of our past from which Jesus has freed us, but on the basis of what we believe God is up to in the future. Just as my kids, when they were little, uh, altered their language and their behavior, not because they thought Jesus' second coming was happening, but because they thought Santa was making another appearance. <laughs> so, so back to Mark 13. This passage is, is also not what we call uh, apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, the word just means an unveiling. That's like you read in Daniel or in Revelation. A lot of symbols, a lot of visions, and all that kind of thing. This passage is not about that either. And if we confuse this passage with what we read, for instance, in Revelation, then we're going to miss the point that Mark is trying to make in bringing to us these words of Jesus. In other words, the purpose of this passage is not to provide a blueprint or a timetable for those um, end-of-the-times code crackers, you know. Uh, it's to encourage Mark's readers to be faithful in the present, to do what uh, is mentioned six times in this entire chapter, be alert and watchful. It'll, it'll help if we understand the context of this passage before we, we land this plane. So we'll come down one level at a time so that we don't miss the meaning of Mark wants us to get out of these words of Jesus. So if we're at the 30,000 feet level, we have to understand the audience to which Mark was addressing his entire gospel. He's writing about three decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, about the time of Emperor Nero, and he's writing to Christians primarily in Rome. Mark is aware of the fact that his account of the gospel has to meet the needs of Christians who are being persecuted in Rome. They need reassurances that will help them remain faithful in their discipleship. And so it is only Mark, only Mark's gospel, when talking about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, that mentions that Jesus was with wild beasts. The others don't mention that. And it's only Mark who uh, adds to Jesus' promise that those who suffer now will receive, you remember that, a hundredfold in this age and in, now in this age and the age to come, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields. He's the only one who adds with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. You see, the other gospel accounts don't mention the persecutions in this promise. So Mark knows that he is writing to Christians in Rome who need encouragement to stick, in, to stick with it in the light of what is happening and going to happen in their lives. And now we come down to 15,000 feet, uh, coming closer to our text this morning and we've seen that uh, in the last few weeks, Jesus is in conflict with the Jewish authorities and what is going on in the temple. Back a couple of chapters in Mark's gospel, Mark does what he often does in his gospel. He will take a story, two stories. He'll bracket one story 
and surround another story with it. He'll have one part of a story, and then he'll have a story, and then he'll have the last part of that other story. And that's what he did when the disciples were spying a fig tree with those leaves but no fruit. And then Jesus goes to the temple, and he he clears out the temple, and then they're going back, and they see the same fig tree and said, it's withered, Jesus. And the point that that Mark's making by putting these stories together is that there's a lot of activity in the temple, but it has nothing to do with the fruit it ought to be producing in people's lives. And just last week, in the story of the widow's might that Todd talked about, Jesus condemns the religious authorities who devour widows' houses because Mark is using that story to justify Jesus' prediction in this morning's passage that not one stone of that temple will be left upon another. It was an amazing prediction, amazing, given the fact that the stones of the retaining wall that still exist today, and if you've been in Israel, in Jerusalem, you've seen those stones. Those stones that are with that retaining wall are 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep. And they weigh together over a million pounds. It's amazing. They're amazed at this. In fact, the enclosure of the temple, just to give you an idea of how big this was, the enclosure of the temple would house 12 football fields. No wonder the disciples are impressed. But what Mark is doing in his gospel here is he's building up to a final break between Jesus and the temple. A conflict that will be used later in Mark's gospel to nail down Jesus' death sentence. Because... Here, in verse 3, Mark says that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So much of what we've been considering since chapter 11 in Mark, when Jesus entered Jerusalem up to this point in Mark's gospel, is focused on Jesus' condemnation of a temple which he labeled a den of thieves. And so now we make our approach to the landing strip the specific reason that Mark gives for recording these words we have heard this morning in Mark's gospel, these words of Jesus. What prompted them was the disciples' question. Their question by Jesus' prediction about the destruction of the temple. Many other people were predicting this at the time. Jesus wasn't alone. Many could foresee that, yes, uh, Rome is going to come in and do some damage. And indeed, in 70 AD, Caesar ordered that the whole city and the temple be razed to the ground. When will these things be? When will these things be, this destruction of the temple, Jesus? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Well, Jesus' answer in Mark's gospel uh, is divided into two sections. Each one begins with the same Greek word that, unfortunately, in our translation, doesn't remain consistent. In verses 5 and 9, it's a word that is sometimes translated in translations, see, or beware, or be on your guard, or maybe best, be clear in your own minds. Be clear in your own minds. In other words, Jesus' description of what is coming in these disciples' lives 
sounds a lot like the summary of the news that we hear daily on CNN or Fox or NPR. Jesus is telling us, look at those things in a way that might be different from the way that CNN, Fox, or NPR look at them. So what events is he talking about? What events should we look at differently than maybe those who are not disciples of Jesus look at? Well, he says that there will be threats from within the church. That's in verse 6. There will be threats from within the church. And this actually happened in the days, in the years before the Jewish revolt in 66 AD that finally led to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Many uh, came along and made claims to be messiahs like Jesus. And, you know, that goes on today as well. In other words, we're exhorted to be alert how religious claims are made. We need to ask if those uh, who say that they represent the God revealed in Jesus Christ are really representing Jesus Christ. Or are they merely, merely using God words and Christian words and Christian credentials for ulterior purposes? A lot of that is going on today, even in our political discourse. And one way to test those claims, let me suggest to you, is to ask this question, do the claims being made or the words being spoken match what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? You can always use the Sermon on the Mount as a litmus test to see if the credentials are being misused. And Jesus also said in this section that threats will come from international conflicts, wars, natural disasters, those affect believers and non-believers. Jesus talks about those in verses 7 and 8. And that description fits every age, right? But he was especially speaking to the disciples again in this context. The first generation of Christians who would be persecuted under Caligula and Nero. Who experienced famines that we hear about in the book of Acts. And who lived through natural disasters such as that which happened to Pompeii. Again, it's the six o'clock news, and it happens in every generation. But Jesus says, look, keep your head up. Don't panic, because these kinds of things are just the beginning of the birth pangs. Think about that image. Birth pangs are not the end of anything but childlessness. They are the beginning of new life. Yeah, Jesus describes events that will continue until the kingdom comes in its fullness. But what Jesus is saying is they don't mark the church's annihilation. In fact, they have to do with the church's life, with its flourishing existence in this world. These are the beginnings of new life. And then Jesus, you know, if you thought, it's okay, Jesus, I've had enough. We, we've heard enough. Uh, turning off the news. Nope. He goes on. And in the next section, he talks about threats, not only within the church now, but against the church in verses 9 through 13. He's telling us that, look, disciples should have no illusions about life with Jesus. Trials and sufferings and persecutions are not exceptions in the Christian life. Jesus says these are going to be norms. In fact, I've said this before, I, I think Jesus would make a terrible evangelist 
in a crusade, right? His appeal would be, come, come forward, and you will suffer. And, and you may lose your family, and you may lose your possessions, and you're going to lose your life. Come follow me. And this is what he's saying here. But even though these are not exceptions, these are norms, what he is also reminding us is that these are times of opportunities when we are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to declare our faith before others. Trevek and I witnessed that in our several trips to Sudan. Pastor Arosu, whom we met, told us about being arrested just for being a Christian in Khartoum, Sudan, uh, an Islamic dictatorship country. Just because he was a Christian, he was arrested for 70 days in prison. And during that time, he said he just shared with his fellow inmates the gospel, and then he was released. And then there was Pastor Idris. We saw him in two different trips. After the first trip, we found out in the second trip as we talked to him that he had been taken in southern Sudan, where he lived, to a ghost house and tortured for two weeks to the point that he wanted to die. And then he was finally released. And he was in Khartoum, and we were with him that time because he was seeing doctors who were repairing his body. But you know what? He went right back to ministering to the widows and children of families in southern Sudan that needed um, to be cared for. By the way, when I hear Christians in the U.S. claim that they're being persecuted because they can't say Merry Christmas, I want them to visit places like Sudan and understand what being persecuted for their faith really means. We are not persecuted. But these things are not signs of the end. They are not signs of the end. They are signs that go with the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Signs that go with the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Beatings, trials, betrayal. In other words, we share as disciples the same fate as Jesus Christ. The disciple is reminded that just as what God has already done when Jesus was betrayed and tried and mocked and lynched, she can trust what God is doing now and going to do in the future. Those who are loyal disciples of Christ, says Mark, repeating Christ's words, will be hated by the world. It's the norm. It should be. Somebody said if we're not being hated, we should look at our discipleship and see how we're doing. Hated because in their loyalty, disciples go against the grain of the world in their obedience, blessing those who persecute them, praying for their enemies, turning the other cheek when they're struck, returning good for evil, refusing to hate, caring for the imprisoned, sticking up for women who are threatened with verbal or physical stoning. Why? Because loyalty to Christ trumps every other loyalty. Disciples of Jesus may not be able to endure everything they suffer, but they are called to do one thing in every crisis, to endure to the end, and they will be saved. So how will you get by this coming week? 
especially when you hear about wars and nations rising up against nations and Christians being persecuted and betrayed in parts of the world and earthquakes and famines and, oh yeah, midterm elections. Hopefully, we, the church, will not respond in worldly ways, interpreting events in ways that are dictated by those whose loyalties lie with a political party or a nation, but by the one, but by our loyalty to the one who insisted that his disciples be alert and watchful, interpreting life events as those who believe that the sovereign God that we worship is working out his purposes in this world. Or as Eugene Peterson, who did die this week, translated verse 13, stay with it. That's what's required. Stay with it to the end. You won't be sorry. You'll be saved. Before we join together in our prayer for ordinary time, let's just take a few moments of silent reflection to consider the impact of this passage how will how will we look at the signs this week through what lens will you interpret this week's events that you hear about on the six o'clock news or whatever you listen to what significance will Jesus's demands of his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount place upon your life this week or maybe more to the immediate point how will you determine to be part of the answer to the prayer that we are going to pray at Eucharist when we ask God's will to be done on earth, here and now, as God has already established it with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father? Let's just take a few moments to think about this coming week.